Well, I hope that you are well today. Feels good outside, a little cooler, a little cooler. Uh, football's in. You should be enjoying that, right? I'm, I am, I'm happy today. I, I'm admitting that my team won a game yesterday that I did not really expect them to win, so I'm, I'm doing good. If you don't have a college team that, that's winning, at least Chiefs are good, right? Enjoying that. And if you don't like football, baseball's happening. And, uh, I mean, isn't it, isn't it good to watch the Royals in the postseason? <laughs> Especially in the first round, it feels like just pick a team. There's like at least four Royals on every one of them, right? It's just, it's a good season. I, I like the fall. I like the fall. Here's where I want to start today. It's good to see you. It's good to see you today. It's a simple phrase, but for me, that actually requires maybe a little more than you might think. Because for me to say, it's good to see you today, means that required me being intentional earlier this morning. When I placed some very small, yet very, very powerful little lenses into my eyes. If I had not placed those very small, yet very powerful, and believe me, they're, they're powerful, lenses into my eyes this morning, it is true that I would notice that there is a crowd here today. And it is true that I would notice at times when there would be movement in the room. But if I had not put those little yet powerful lenses in my eyes this morning, I would not be able to recognize the specific characteristics that identify each of you. And I would not be able to say, it's good to see you today. The lens changes the view. The lens changes the view. And most of us learned that at a pretty early age when, when we began to be introduced to maybe some different lenses. Maybe it was in school that you were first introduced to the microscope, or maybe you ordered one of those microscope kits. All right? Anybody get one of those when you were, were a kid? Yeah, yeah. Now, I'm telling you, I truly am a part of what I call the lawn dart generation. Anybody know what lawn darts are? Yeah, I grew up in the lawn dart generation. For those of you that don't know, we literally had toys that were these gigantic darts, like they really were about a foot in size. And you played with them in your yard. There was a circle that you put on, on, in two places in the yard. And then you would throw these darts that, that had a weighted metal tip on the end of it. Think cornhole, except with metal darts raining out of the sky instead of, of little, little bitty bags of beans. You know what I'm saying? That's my generation. We, we grew up with things like lawn darts. So when we ordered microscopes... We got a real scalpel with them. 
right? No lie. None of this plastic stuff that looks like a scalpel and you can kind of, no, we, we got, really got a scalpel with our microscopes. That, that's the stuff I remember. It's like, we really could cut stuff, right? We really could look at blood under the microscope. <laughs> we did. We did. Or, or maybe it's the binoculars for you. Got to love the binoculars. I mean, that's, that's cool when you're in the cheap seats, right? And you're trying to watch the game. The binoculars work for you. Or, or for some of you, I mean, it, it really is when you're sitting in the stand and this is what helps you count how many points are on that big boy that you're trying to decide if you, you should shoot or not, right? Binoculars make that work. Or, or maybe it's, it's more the, the, the telescope, right? And, and the first time you were able to, to look through one of those deals that, that just seems to bring that object closer to you, we now, because of telescopes, are, are given opportunity to see images like that. that that's a real photograph. Um, it was the Cassini uh, probe from, from NASA. It, it, more than a decade, observed this most incredible planet that we, we read about in the books and we would see paintings of it and, and think about Saturn and its rings, but all of a sudden, we, we can see it because the lens changes the view. It is a common phrase in church life to magnify the Lord. You ever heard that? Magnify the Lord. Psalm 34 literally says, oh, magnify the Lord with me. It's the words that are used, magnify. Now, I think when we typically hear that in a context of, of, of church, magnify the Lord, we, we typically just substitute a word like glorify. We, we typically just substitute a word like praise, praise the Lord with me, glorify the Lord with me. But, but to magnify, I want you to think about the word literally for, for what it means. It's, it's what you learned from a telescope or a microscope or a pair of binoculars. To, to magnify is to see something bigger. And so when we talk about magnifying the Lord, it is to see God in his bigness. It is to, to see that in our lives, to zoom in on the detail that we normally don't observe. It is to zoom in on the aspect of his character, to, to zoom in on his being as if to bring him closer. Now, you know he's close. You know he is all present, but, but we don't see who he is all the time. And just as Saturn is certainly not small, we just don't often recognize how big it is. Saturn's rings, they are, they are composed of these ice particles. They range in size from smaller than a grain of rice to larger than mountains. Those rings extend from Saturn, from, its, from the planet's surface. Those rings extend out 175,000 miles. But because they're so perfectly proportioned from, from the mountain-sized particles to the grains of rice-sized particles, it looks like they are just literally drawn, doesn't it? It looks like they are so, who did that? 
That's what we're talking about today. When we put a lens on our God and we begin to see the bigness of who he is, how could we not constantly see his greatness? Well, that's what we're talking about in this series that we've been in for a little while now. It is the fact that although we were built to see that greatness of our God, although we were built to respond to him when we see that greatness because of our sin, we often settle for much less. But the truth is we all worship. This is what we do. This is what we do. Now, I still get questions every once in a while going, hey, what is that on that slide? It's like, hey, what is, what is that image on that slide? And a part of the reason I loved it when they developed the slide is when you first looked at it, most everybody, when you first looked at it, you couldn't tell. And then after you kind of focus, you can see him. And you can see that it's the face of Jesus, a crown of thorns, his eye, his beard. And that's kind of what we're talking about in this series where most of us have a way of just walking through life and, and, and we don't really see what this is all about. But when we pause long enough to go, wait, what is the reason we have been given breath? Why is it really that, that we are on this planet? It is Jesus that comes into clarity. It is to magnify him. We want to do that when we gather in a time like this. But what we're learning is that worship is much more than just singing. It is about our life. And one of the ways I like to describe it is it's about what you do with what I'm going to call the, the, particularly the other 110 hours of your life. And you're like, that's a, that's a weird number. Why 110? Well, think about, think about a, a day of 24 hours. And so in a week, you've got 168 hours. We're going to say that you do what your doctor tells you to and you sleep eight hours, all right? And I know some of you don't. You're in the six range, you're in the five range, you're in the four range. But there are others of you that go, eight hours, I sleep ten hours, right? So if we average it all together, we're going to say eight hours. That's 56. If you take 56 from 168, that leaves 112. And then let's just say that most of us are together to worship him for a couple of hours each week like this kind of setting. That leaves 110. That's 110. And my question is, how do we worship him with that 110? And what if we could worship him every day, even in the things we get paid to do? Now, that's a good God. Could God make it so that we even worship him in the things we get paid? paid to do. That's what we're going to talk about today. But in order to see that, it takes a different lens. Now, maybe you're like, I go to school and I don't get paid to go to school, but I'm, I'm telling you that still qualifies. What if you could even worship God in being in a classroom? You got to go to school. It's not where you necessarily most days want to be, but what if you could worship God in a setting like that? It takes a different lens. Let me show you. Let's go to Colossians chapter 3 today. Colossians chapter 3. 
And I'm going to start at the beginning, but I'm really going to start at the beginning in order to get to the end. But I want you to understand the logic that Paul is unpacking in this chapter. Colossians chapter 3, and we're going to start in verse 1. Here's what he says. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Now, I think if you've been in church a long time, sometimes we might miss how some people would read this for the first time. If, if you were just opening the Bible for the first time and you said, since then you have been raised with Christ, there would a lot of people go, no, 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 I did not grow up learning about Christ. That's how they would read it. I, I was not raised with parents who, who taught me about Jesus. Now, I want you to know that's not exactly what this verse is talking about. When it uses the phrase raised with Christ, you got to think in terms of Jesus who died and was raised, all right? He, he arose from the, from the dead. And, and maybe our answer would be, well, I wasn't there either. And so what is this talking about? Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your heart on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, just to sum it up, I think what Paul's talking about, and we're going to see it in the next few verses, he's talking about baptism. He's talking about this image of baptism. It is, it is this symbol of being raised to new life. It is a symbol of dying to myself. So think about when you see a baptism, it is a, a picture of a person who is buried. We die to ourselves, that's the, that's the language that the scripture uses, and then we are raised to new life, just like Jesus died and he arose again. Now that whole dying to self stuff, that whole dying to self stuff, that gets kind of radical, doesn't it? That gets kind of radical. Some of you right now are working through a study by that name. It's what we've encouraged our life teams all across Heart of Life to be a part of, Radical. And if I had to summarize what that's about in, in just a few words, it is this picture of dying to self and being raised to new life in Jesus. A couple of people have kind of said, you know, Jeff, I, I read that book and I don't, I don't know if I like that book. I'm like, I hate that book. But the question is not whether I like it or not. The question is, is it what Jesus said? Is it what Jesus said? Is it what Jesus calls for? Now, I'm just going to encourage you for a few minutes, and I'm, I'm, I'm making this statement. I did not this week call any life team leaders. I, I did on purpose. I this week did not ask any life team leaders how things are going. I did not. And I did it for the purpose of being able to say a few things to you this morning, just knowing, because before you went through Radical, I went through Radical. I went through it with some of our missionaries who were heading back to, to Taiwan and all. We worked through this thing, and I know what that study did to my heart. I know what it's still doing to my heart. And so I want to just openly encourage life team leaders, don't explain away Jesus' words. Don't do it. Don't explain away Jesus' words when he calls us to die to self. Don't you explain that away just because people are uncomfortable when they read those things. 
people have always struggled with the statements that Jesus has made that there is no other rival when it comes to our love for him. Even when Jesus stood on the planet, literally, physically, he stands on the planet and he would say it to people around him, people would walk away when he would say those kinds of things. So life team leaders, I I encourage you, it's okay for us to wrestle. It's okay for us to struggle with what Jesus is saying. It's okay. And I want to encourage us, come on, stay in it. Stay in it. Keep, keep walking this out. This is, this is what God does in us as he's growing our faith, as he's showing us what it is okay to wrestle with those things. It is not okay to read what Jesus says and then rewrite the script just to make us feel more comfortable. That's not okay. Do not be guilty of rewriting the script so that everybody's comfortable. Listen to what Jesus says, and then together ask him to help us to follow. I get it. I get it. Baptism is a symbol for that truth, a dying to self and a miracle of new life. Now, I'm going to give you an example. Some of you treat baptism just like you do the other things that Jesus says. You read in the scripture, and it's clear, it's crystal clear that baptism, this raise to new life in him, is what a person does. It is the first step that a person takes after they have put their trust in Jesus. That's what we do. So I put my trust in Jesus. My faith is in him I know that I don't deserve forgiveness. I don't earn forgiveness. That's by his grace. It is through faith in him. And when a person comes to that realization on their own, a next step is this step of baptism that demonstrates I am not ashamed. I am willing to identify with him. I put on the jersey. I'm with Jesus. And so some of you were baptized when you were a baby. Okay but that's not what the Bible says. Some of you were baptized after you went through a particular study, a certain age in your life, and you went through a certain study, or or maybe there was a confirmation or something like that, and 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 you were baptized. Okay, but that's not what the Bible says. And I'm saying what we do is we're really good at hearing what Jesus has to say, and then we will rewrite the script as it needs to apply to us so that it keeps us comfortable and we don't have to extend ourselves any more than we really want. You see what I'm saying? Let's don't do that. Let's don't do that. Let's help each other. Hear what Jesus says and then we follow. When you have been raised to life in him, let's go back to that verse. You will set your heart on things above. In other words, your view, the lens, changes. Check out the next verse. Verse 2. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. That's a good place to be hidden. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And so Paul just says, look, you got this new life in him. You are focused on new things, new perspective. And get this, you are secure. 
Come on, this is as safe as you can possibly be. When I've shown you this before. When God's Spirit lives in you, and then you are in Christ, and you in Christ are in God, come on, who's going to mess with that? And if that's who you are, he says, then worship him with your life. And for the rest of chapter 3, Paul is unpacking what does this look like to worship him with your life. If you now have this new life in him and a new perspective, let's skip down to verse 16, and I'll show you what he says. Verse, verse 16, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. All right? So, so a part of how we worship him with our lives involves teaching. That's what he just said. And a part of how we worship him with our lives involves singing. That's what he just said. And so a part of worship means this kind of, of gathering, these kinds of moments when, when there's teaching of God's word and when we're singing those truths about him. When we do that, we start to see him bigger. We start, we start to, to deal with aspects of his character, of his being that, that, that we at times miss, but when we sing it and when we teach it, it, it brings our focus into view, but... Paul doesn't end the chapter there. Verse 17. And whatever you do, whatever. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, so in what you speak, in, in your action, what, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, Jeff, I, I, I just go to school. Then he says, do that in the name of Jesus, giving thanks to God. Through it. There, there is an aspect of worship if you are a student going to school that is supposed to, to be the focus of your heart. If, if whatever your vocation, whatever your occupation, right, if you are retired, it, he says, whatever you do, it is to be to and for God. In other words, all of it is a call to worship. All of it. It's, it's all this call to worship this, this God who, who is so big we just often miss. Then, Paul says, this should, this should flow into how your houses look not your structure of your house, but your household. This should, this should affect husbands and wives, how you love each other. Your view has now been changed. You have new life in him. The lens has moved how you love one another. That should change. Children, how you obey your parents, that lens should have changed in you. Parents, don't frustrate your kids. It's in there. You should read it. Kids are like, that's in the Bible? Yes, it is. You should read the Bible. Right now, kids are looking at their parents and say, see? No, it's in there. How, how households interact should change. And then we get to the text that I really want us to, to hang out on for a few minutes. It's, it's verse 22. 
verse 22, and it reads like this, slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. All right. When we hear the word slave, um, that, that makes most of us feel uncomfortable. And actually, it should make us all feel uncomfortable. One of the most awful things to happen to a person would be a loss of freedom, um, even in many cases a loss, of, a loss of identity. Nothing could be more opposite of how God created us. Okay? Now, it is true, you need to know this, it is true historically that the Bible has been used in the past to defend slavery. Because there are examples that we see throughout Scripture. And so people have actually used the Bible to defend slavery. But it is also true that the Bible was actually the very key to the abolitionist movement that abolished slavery in our culture because the larger view of the Bible is the message of freedom, not slavery. That's its message. There have always been examples of slavery practiced in malicious ways. Always been, still are today. Just stories that will leave you sick, literally at your stomach, when you, when you hear how people will treat people. But a part of what we got to learn in this, this particular context, in terms of a Jewish and a Roman world, the understanding of slavery is a little bit different in that when in a Jewish culture and even in a Roman culture, when they spoke of slaves, the majority of the time, it was in the context of a household. And, and, and what I mean by that is there were many, many, many people who would be considered to be slaves, but these slaves would operate within a household, all right? In, in Jewish culture, there were very strict rules. One of them was how every seventh year, it was called the year of Jubilee, slaves would be freed and all debt would be forgiven. You're like, we should do that in America. Right? Especially that all debt forgiven kind of thing, right? That, that, that's what you think. That would make America great again, right? That's what you're thinking right now, right? Every seventh year, slaves would be freed and debts would be forgiven. In fact, in Jewish culture, slaves could even get an inheritance. Now, in order to get an inheritance, where, where, where do you get the inheritance from? It's passed down from a family. In other words, it should show you Slaves were often considered to be a part of a household to where as they worked in that household, they often had tremendous skills. They would be artists, even doctors who were actually slaves. And as they would work within that family, maybe it was something, a skill of making pottery. They would sell it for a household and then eventually those slaves would be set free and they could even actually have a part of the inheritance from a household. Now listen, listen to what I'm telling you. The context of all that really does allow us to parallel the principles we learn here 
with someone who is an employee under someone else's service. Now listen, I am not saying that your employment is equivalent to being a slave. You said that, right? We jokingly say that. And it really ain't that funny. It's not. I'm not saying, I'm not saying that your employment is equivalent to being a slave. I am saying that the principles that we learn from Colossians chapter 3 that apply to slaves can also be applied to our work because of the context. Look at what he says here. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Okay, nobody knows what that's talking about, do they? No, nobody, nobody's ever known anybody who only actually works when the boss is looking. Nobody knows that person who actually only comes in to work when the boss is actually in the office, right? No, nobody knows that person who is able to dodge all the responsibilities it feels like until the boss has their eyes on what's going on and then suddenly this person responds and they're just so responsible and they're so good, right? That Paul knows. He knows. And so this is what he's dealing with. And he's saying, look, this is not about just when your boss, little b, is looking. This is remembering that your boss, Big B, is always looking. And you are to work as if you are serving him. Let's keep reading. Verse 23. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. As working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Whoa. So question. If Jesus worked in the office that you worked in, how would you do things differently? If Jesus were your supervisor, how would you do things differently? And your response is an immediate, well, Jeff, let me just clarify, Jesus is not my supervisor. If you were ever worked in my office, you would be quite clear that my supervisor is not Jesus. And I would stop you right there and I would say, are you a Jesus follower? And if you tell me yes, then I'm telling you, Jesus is your supervisor. Jesus is. Most people... I think in our culture, we, we, we know it's big to have an, emplo an employment agreement, right? If, if, you, if you're going to work a job, if you're going to be employed, you want an employment agreement so that expectations are met. I mean, you want to know what is it that they expect of me, what are the requirements, because I want to make sure that I can fulfill those requirements and they do not have grounds to fire me, to let me go, as long as the requirements that we have agreed upon have been set. 
But there is also this very dark picture of that in our culture where not only do we want that agreement so that we can meet the requirements, but we typically also love to have such agreements so that in all the areas that are not on the agreement, in all the areas that it doesn't say that I have to do, then I can say, you guys have a good evening. I'm going home. In all those areas that don't apply to me, see ya. You guys have a good evening. Ho- hope it goes well tonight. Hope you're not too late getting home, right? That, that typically is the way our culture sees work. We, we, we don't want to go any further than we absolutely have to go. I'm saying when you follow Jesus, when you are doing things for Jesus, then it not only means that you do your job, but it means you do it to the absolute best of your ability. It means that you not only do the requirements that are on your agreement, but you're the kind of person who looks out for others where you work. And you're looking for ways that you can help How can I help him? How can I help her? It means simple things like be on time. Be on time. When an an employer is is paying, right, it it is respect. That that if it were Jesus, you you wouldn't try to shortcut that with him. I think a lot of people spend a lot of time um, always in a particular work setting, listing the things that they don't like about particularly the person who is over them, and and the constant desire is to move to something else and to move to something else and to move to something else. And when I read Scripture, there really seems to be this this principle that until, until you can work for those over you as if you are working for God himself, then you are not free to move on. Like, well, I don't like that. I know. I know. Let's change the script. Let's rewrite it, shall we? Let's just, let's just make up something new, right? He goes, no, because he, he knows our heart. By the way, I'm not going to walk you through the whole story today, but if you want to read a great example in Scripture of what we're talking about, he's a guy named Joseph. Read his story. Genesis, book of Genesis, read Joseph's story. Brothers sold him into slavery, lied to their dad, sold him into slavery, Right? He, it is unjust. He should not be there. You know how Joseph responds? He serves. He serves where he is placed, knowing that God is with him and knowing that God is leading. All the way to the top, he will eventually serve. Now, at times, he spent in prison. There, there were moments that it cost him for, for being faithful to God, but God raised him to this place of influence. Think about it in your setting what more could happen if I had a better attitude? Seriously, what more could happen if my heart were different about all this? Jeff, you say, Jeff, there's no way that my work could be worship. There's no way that my work could be worship. We, we say those things because we have so disassociated the work we do with the God we serve. And we say those things because we so live for now And when Paul talks to them about how they work, he talks about inheritance. He talks about how one day all accounts will be settled. 
He doesn't say that everything now will be perfect. He doesn't say that everybody will be treated perfectly now. He points towards something future where the one who is the boss, he will, he will, make, he will settle all accounts one day. And so he says, stay faithful. All right, real quick. So how do I do that in my work, Jeff? Let me give you a few statements. One is to magnify some attribute of God that your work displays. When you think about the attributes of God, he is gracious, he is loving, his goodness, his justice, his sovereignty, his transcendence, he's all-powerful, he's all-present, he's all-knowing. I'm not saying you act like you're all-knowing. I'm saying act like he's all-knowing. How do you you magnify some attribute of God that your work displays? Or magnify in your work life on earth as it is in heaven. Give them a glimpse. Give them a glimpse of, of, of what it's like. Work is connected to value. Therefore, your work is connected to something eternal. And so, I mean, if you're in health care, come on. That, that's not a stretch to realize we, we, the one who watches over us, he is the great physician. And so what you do in, in the field of healthcare, it is, it is out of a love for people, and it is literally that, that he cares about the physical healing of people's bodies, yes, their soul. If, if you're a teacher or a principal, you're in, you're in education somewhere, come on, that's not a stretch to, to know that our God loves children. He said, bring them to me. And so the way that you do what you do is about magnifying how big God is that, that those children might see how he loves. If you are an, an engineer, you're like, how do I do that? Well, some engineers are, are about stewarding the, the natural resources of, of this earth to do that in a way that honors God. So, some, re, some engineers are about, you know, developing products in a way that are safe for people to enjoy. I, I'm saying all those, they mirror the heart of, of our God. You, you say, well, I, Jeff, I'm, I'm in the asphalt business. And I'm saying, well, I don't, I don't think there's going to be any potholes in heaven. Right? But seriously, we go, what am I? No, think about safety. Think about providing roads that are safe for people to drive on. Think about a connection aspect of our God who connects people. I'm not stretching. I'm saying that's just not normally how we see it, is it? It's not normally how we see it. Well, the reason we don't see it that way is because most of the time the lens is focused on questions like, how am I being treated, and am I being paid fairly, and where else can this be better for me, instead of a lens being focused on our God going, how great is he, and he put me here for a reason for these people to see how great he is. How can I worship him with my life, that I will declare my God's greatness, knowing that I might not see the return on this side, but there is an inheritance coming, and there is a God who settles accounts that for all of eternity, I'm going to worship him now. I'm going to leverage all that I have. I will be radical. But you got to flip the lens. There's one more. Magnify through your work the Jesus life to others. That's what we're talking about. Do people in your work know that you have a first priority relationship with God? Do people in your work know that authentic relationships with people are valued by your God? Do people see you adjust your life daily to follow Jesus? Do people see his love and justice displayed to them? Have people where you work ever heard you share 
the gospel. Your work, yes, God uses it to provide. But your work is not the source of your provision. God is the source of your provision. I understand even in God's work, he says, in his word, he says, if you don't work, you don't eat. I get it. He says, there, there, is, there is a value to work that comes. But when we start thinking that our work and our ability to work is, is the source of, of, of our provision, we have become extremely arrogant and too much of the lens is on us instead of the God who gives us breath and strength and skill and ability to even do the work that he lets us do. Our work is the opportunity to see and to show him bigger. Let me give you one more verse, and then we're going to respond here. Philippians chapter 1, verse 20 says, I eagerly expect and hope. This is Paul. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. He says, I'm saying, whatever in my life, I want to see him exalted. Let me give you a quick word study here. That that word exalted is the Greek word megaluno. Now, even you you can see mega in it, all right? So so what I'm about to tell you, this this word that that represents a bigness aspect In some translations of the Bible, like the King James, uh, megaluno is actually translated magnified. So if you look at this verse in the King James, it's the word magnified. If you look at this word in the New American Standard or the NIV or uh, some other translations, it will be translated exalted. And you're like, which one's right? And I'm saying, yes, Because it actually requires both of those words in our English language to encompass what this word megaluno means. Paul says there is this idea of enlarging the picture of Christ. That, that people will see through, Paul says, through my life, through my death, I want the picture of life, of Jesus enlarged. I want it blown up big enough that they will see. And it's not because I got a big picture of Jesus on my t-shirt. It's what I say. It's what I do. And then he says second, but it's also the idea of exalting this enlarged picture of Jesus. It's not just to put it on a billboard, but it is to be transparent about my devotion to my Savior. I want to enlarge and magnify who he is, but I also want to reveal and exalt who he is. And I'm saying to you today, if we will start to see our work as an opportunity to worship, it'll change how we see the lens that we've been given. A lens is powerful in that it it allows things to be drawn, right? You You look through a lens and it'll magnify the view of the sun. But it is also true that a lens will magnify the power of that sun. And if you know how to hold this thing right, you can start a fire. And that's what happens. That's what happens 
when you declare with my life, I'm going to do everything that I can that Jesus might be seen for as big as he really is. And when that lens is placed on him, I want Jesus to be seen bigger than he is, no matter what it costs me here. What happens is there is an incredible blessing that comes back the other direction. And the power of that one that you are shining the light on actually shines into your life. And a fire is lit. And you know why you've been given breath. You know your purpose for being here. You know it's still worth it even when you are taken advantage of. You know it's still worth it even when it hurts. You know it is worth it. There is a fire ignited in you. I want you to come to the place that in this relationship between you and God, this is the phrase you use often. God, it's good to see you today. See, I want you to wake up in the morning and right after you take the first breath or two and you realize that you really are awake, the thought that hits your, your mind is, God, it's good to see you this morning. And whether you head off to school or work and you deal with all the junk that school and work brings and all the scenarios and all the stuff people try to mess with you and all that stuff, in the middle of all that, when you know he's there, and you watch how he often protects you. You watch how he gives you direction. You watch how you feel his presence. You're able to say in the middle of a day, God, it's good to see you today. And when you put your head on the pillow at night and another day has been lived for his glory, you've seen him act. You've seen him move. Sometimes you've seen him answer prayer specifically that day, but you know his goodness has wrapped you up all day long again. And you say, God, it was really good to see you today. My prayer is that the lens of your heart is focused on him. We're going to respond to that greatness now. We're going to do that by singing, which the Scripture calls us to. We're going to do that by giving, which the Scripture calls us to. The boxes are around the room. It's what we do. It's how we respond. People kind of freak out over giving. It's like, no, what, what else are we going to do as the people of God when we know how big our God is and the mission he calls us to? We give and we sing. But we're also going to give you some other opportunities today. In the back of the room, right over there and right over there, there are a couple of tables that are set up for communion today. And so we want to invite you as we're singing in the next few minutes, you, you could go there individually, you could go there with someone else, you could go with your family. It's a moment that we are magnifying when God declared his love for us in a way that we almost cannot imagine that Jesus would die on a cross for us. And so that juice and that bread, they represent his body, they represent his blood, and when we eat it and drink it, we are remembering that magnified moment of God declaring his love, and you are remembering that magnified moment when you said, I'm in. I will die to myself, my plans, my dreams. And Jesus, I want you more than anything else. We're also going to give you the opportunity to respond today right over here by the cross. Um, there are going to be some, some folks available that... Um, um, to be willing to, to pray for you and to anoint with oil. 
We don't do that every week around here, but we absolutely believe that's biblical. James tells us in the book of James, is anyone among you sick? Now, he's not talking about you got a little cold. He's not talking about you got a little sniffle. This is, this is there are some certain circumstances that happen in our life that it, this is, we realize this is bigger than us. This is so much bigger than us. There is a struggle. And it says, if anyone among you sick, let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, listen to me. The oil is not magic. It's oil. But it is powerful when it is used in obedience to what God has called us to do because that oil represents, I call it the one essential oil, just so you know. There is one essential oil, and that is the Spirit of God. And that oil represents his spirit that heals. He is powerful to heal. And so there's nothing weird. I mean, I guess it's a little weird because it's supernatural, but, but I want to encourage you today, if that's a scenario going on in your life, you're walking through something really big, I would encourage you to meet us right over here by the cross. It, it's just really simple. Just going to put a little oil um, on your hand or, or maybe on your forehead just, and just to remind us it is God's spirit who says we can ask him for healing. We can. There are also going to be people around the room that, that, that just times of prayer. Maybe it's something you need to, to talk to God about, be honest with him about. Maybe it's whatever it is. We're going to respond to him. Let's stand. We'll sing and we'll worship him together.